Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast. 30 minutes of nail-biting, tear-jerking, heart-rending conversations with some of the leaders in the sport. This is Chris McDougall, and today we're here with the original gangster himself, Buzz Burrell. Chris, you do that so much better than I do. I, I think you should be hosting this podcast because you've probably got a few other things to do, don't you? You give me an opportunity to mess around and like have a good time, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pull out the stops. Oh, man, you sound better than I do. That's great. And you are here in Boulder. Today is Monday, October 14th. This podcast will come out this Friday. All right. But you're here in Boulder promoting your new book, Yeah, Running with Sherman. Yeah. Now, people say, well, what's the book about? It's kind of interesting when someone says, what's it about? Ostensibly, it's about finding a ailing donkey on your farm in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, sort of nursing him back to health and deciding to enter the world championship burro race out here in Colorado. But is that really what the book's about? Now, you did that better than I do. <laughs> I get that question all the time, Buzz. I bet. And then I just turn my mouth into a bowl of spaghetti. I'm just like, blah, blah, blah. I'm not really sure what to say. And that was exactly what it is. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It is that is the plot. But I think what it digs down into is this lost art of animal-human partnerships. Mm-hmm. Something we all get satisfaction from, but we've forgotten how to do it. Boy, you get into, as usual, you get into that. It's, if I may say so, Chris, you have this knack for just pulling a weed out of the briar patch. Something that's been there all along. And you dress it up, you make it look good, and you serve it at a gourmet restaurant for a lot of money, and it's really successful. That's kind of what you do with your ideas. I'm just drinking this in, Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you for that. I, I, If I had to craft a compliment to myself, I couldn't have done it better. That's great. Thank you. Well, look at Born to Run. I mean, you, you weren't the first to think of some of these concepts, but you blew it out of the park. That book is iconic, certainly one of the top five running books ever written, and now you've done something similar with Running to Sherman, with Sherman, that animal-human partnership, well, you talk about it in the book, it goes back since the dawn of human history. I think the thing about it is I was lucky with all of my books that I came in as an outsider, as a student, and if I had written Born to Run a year later, it would have been a much worse book. Because at the time I was writing it, I was just getting into the sport. I was just meeting these people. I had heard a little bit about barefoot running, but I wasn't completely convinced. And if I'd been any more sure of myself, the book would have come across as a screed, you know, as an opinion instead of a question. And with Running with Sherman, I think it's very similar. I got in over my head, wasn't sure what I was doing. And so what I think is reflected there is that I had the luck to be an insider and an outsider. Immersed in it, but not quite sure what I was doing. Well, the in over your head part is elucidated very well in the book. (laughs) Well, you know, you made me think about something. In over your head, isn't that really what this sport's all about? Mm. Why is it a fastest known time? Because we're not really sure. No one really knows what we're getting into. It's a relative statement. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Very good point. And we talked about that millennia of husbandry. You mentioned in the book that dogs, dogs were almost bred by humans, all the breeds you see. Uh, Donkeys, not so much. We did not turn our focus on donkeys as, um, as much as we have with dogs, and which is a fascinating thing because you're right. Dogs became 
useful partners really early on. Donkeys are relatively new, and they, they serve a very specialized purpose. Um, you know, dogs are universal. You can apply them to a thousand different situations, to, to combat, to, to blind people, to hunters, anything. Donkeys are a kind of specialized vehicle. They were native to northern Africa, the deserts. And so what they're good on is kind of camel-like. They're good on hot, dry terrain, mountains, but not many people live in those areas, and particularly not here in the United States. So we never bothered to really domesticate them and train them and breed them the way we have with dogs. But then the miners came around. Perfect use. So the miners come around, and the beautiful thing about a donkey is, and what really distinguishes it from other equines, is that a horse... You can force a horse to do what you want. You can get, you can be Butch Cassidy, and you can get that horse to jump off a cliff in a river. <laughs> you have never seen a movie where a donkey is jumping <laughs> off no cliff. Ain't going to happen. Because donkeys have this very acute survival instinct, where if they're not sure about something, they will freeze up. So their survival instinct is to, to lock up and turn to stone. And that's why they're great for miners, because you could be a miner up in the mountains riding your donkey, and the donkey stopped, and you're whipping, like, come on, man, go. I'm hungry, I'm tired, I want to get out of the cold. The donkey won't go. You get off your donkey, and you check out the trail, and you realize, ah, you know, it's a crumbly trail, or there's a rattlesnake, or there's a cougar. The donkey senses it, and you cannot bully it into doing something that's against its own judgment. That's the good news. The bad news is, if you decide there's something you want to do, and the donkey's not down to clown, it's not happening. It's not happening. Of course, the, the stubbornness is legendary, although as you just explained, it's not exactly stubbornness. It's strong self-preservation instinct. And unlike the horse, <laughs> the famous scene out of the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid where they supposedly jumped off that cliff. Uh, yeah, I got it. The donkey, and of course, now you're, now you're going to race. So you go, you've gone from this historical use of hauling loads to let's go there, which is this entirely human conceptualization. The idea of the race. So here's the mythology. The mythology is that here in Colorado, back in the 1800s, prospectors who would be out in the range, they would strike gold. And so they would throw all their gear on the back of a donkey and then run to town as fast as they could to register the claim. And then once you've gotten this claim and you've got some gold in your pocket, well, now you're hanging out in Leadville in the 1800s little money in your pocket. And so these miners with their donkeys would race each other, running up and down the street. That racing up and down the street went from racing in Leadville to racing from Leadville over to Fair Play. So these races developed. Whether that actually happened, who knows. But later on, when Leadville was um, hosting the Climax Molybdenum Mine, those burrows are still being used. They're very useful down in the uh, the mines. Because At the time the mine closed and was operating, they were still using burros? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. They were super useful because they were they don't startle. They're super cheap. You don't need to put fuel into them. You just let them graze. And they're, they're compact. So what would happen is the miners back in the, the 1940s and 50s, they would have these uh, burrows out in the pasture on the weekends when the mines were closed. And the miners, they come up from the ground too. They want to have some fun. So they start messing around with these races. So starting in the 1950s, they had these long-distance borough races across the state. And these are these are hardcore races. These are 22 to 29 miles of mountain trail. Yeah. Let's clarify something real quick, which I had to look up myself. 
A burro is simply the Spanish word for donkey. It's the same animal. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Just had to get that done. And a mule is a crossbreed between a male donkey and a female horse. Correct. And you can't use a mule because mules are a little, lot more cooperative. It's a different. It's a different deal. Yeah, and that, they're bred for that particular reason. They're bred to be farm implements and to take orders. So you put a little bit of horse in them, and then you get the steadiness and the strength of donkey and the obedience and the size of a horse. So your story ties in really well together because in the book we find out that you first heard about burro racing out here in Leadville when you came out to check out the Tarahumara. The Ramaruri, the people who'd come out here for two years, just cleaned up at the Leadville Trail 100. And Ken Clover, <laughs> the epic race, co-race director and founder of the Leadville Trail 100, showed you Budo racing at that time. So this kind of came a little bit full circle for you, didn't it? So everything I've done in the past 13 years happened right here. And it happened for one reason. Because I'd heard about the Tarahumata coming here to race... And I had a friend named Max Potter from Philadelphia, who was an editor at 5280 Magazine. And I said to Potter, I said, hey, you know, I'm really curious what's going on in Leadville. Why were the defending champions never invited back? So again, I'm a stranger to ultra racing. And my assumption for most sports is the defending champions are always invited back. You don't not invite back the Lakers. <laughs> and so to me, well, if they didn't invite back this tribe that's been kicking the crap out of everybody, it must be prejudice. They must have decided, we don't want these Mexicans coming up here and beating our American runners. That was my prejudice, my, my preconcept. So I talked to my friend Max and said, I, I really like to come out to Leadville and talk to these people and find out what's going on. So I came in just fully loaded with like East Coast <laughs> liberal vengeance and came down to Leadville and met up with Ken Clover and in about 90 seconds I realized, oh man, I am off target because <laughs> Ken just he's like I don't give a shit I don't care who comes they can come back you know and I had to call my friend Max and well said, Ken is not the type who beats around the bush is he well you know yeah but the thing about that is he also if someone's being blunt with you he can be blunt in return so it's not that usual pussy footing around where I felt like I had to edge around like, I just let him have it with both barrels pretty early on and and confronted him with what I thought was his prejudice. And he just literally let me have it right back. He said, no, it's not at all, man. You're wrong. And by the way, you want to go snowshoeing? <laughs> he wasn't offended. But so I called my editor back. I called Max back. I said, hey, man, this, uh, this thing you flew me in for, you put me up in the hotel, you rented the car. I'm wrong. It's not a story. He's like, yeah, it's a story. It's just a different story. Go for it. It's and a different that, story. And that was it. That's Born to Run right there. It wow. started that moment. Right. Indeed, your subtitle of Born to Run is A Hidden Tribe. They didn't come back after that. Super athletes and the greatest race in the world no one has ever seen. Yeah. Which, of course, was the Copper Canyon Ultra, which you described very well. So it really started when uh, both things started at the same place in Leadville. Yeah. And then when you got Sherman back there in Pennsylvania, you said, okay, I know. I know what we could do. Well, here's what happened, Buzz. So... I had a great afternoon with Ken, really enjoyed him, and we, we talked in his office, then we went snowshoeing, and I was blown away by everything about Leadville. What a magical place. And then he's like, oh, you know what you got to do? You got to come back for Boom Day. And boom he Day. He tells me his whole story about how he had come here from Oklahoma, and he was like a furniture salesman, and he came to Leadville to work in the mine, and then he wakes up one Saturday morning, and what the hell is going on? Donkeys running down Harrison Avenue. And he made it sound like this is... The best party in the world. 
So I come back that July, and I'm in the Burrow Race. And it was the... I'm trying to clean up my language these days. <laughs> I'll just say the worst, and you can put any other word in front of that worst. Mm-hmm. It was the worst. I hated it. Everything about it. The, the donkey was too strong. The altitude was too high. There's too much chaos going on. So Curtis Emery, the great grandmaster, and everyone told me before, oh, watch Curtis, watch Curtis. Curtis almost died. Curtis got tangled up in a rope. He got dragged. So I finished that race, and I went home, and I'm like, you know what? No way, man. I'm done. So there was the sort of setting. Ten years later, I got a donkey. And I'm like, man, I'm not sure if I ever want to do that ever again. Wow. And you did. <laughs> and that's kind of, that's sort of the arc of the book, isn't it? Sherman shows up looking literally on the verge of death. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And literally nursed back to health. And then, okay, donkeys need something to do. They need a little work. They need a project. And you had something in mind that you remember from 10 years before. And, and so the arc of the book describes, well, we could say many travails in your journey back out to Colorado. Five broken bones, <laughs> one broken marriage at last count. Yeah, it was an interesting story, Buzz. So I, I, I think what's interesting to me is that what Born to Run and Running with Sherman really have in common are two things. One is that with both cases, I kept thinking the story was over. Like, oh, that was the last door shut. We're done. So with with uh, Born to Run, I didn't think I was actually going to find the Tarahumara. Then they wouldn't talk to me. And then uh, I meet Micah, but he's also kind of not that friendly at the time. <laughs> and then he wants to have this race, but I'm convinced no one's going to come. So <laughs> every step of the way, like, well, they're not going to come. Oh, some people came. Well, the Tarahumara aren't going to come. Hey, they showed up. Every step of the way is just like this last glimmer that of hope that the story can continue. And with Running with Sherman, it's very similar. We adopted this donkey who had been held by a hoarder, was in seriously bad shape with overgrown hooves and rotting teeth and um, parasites, really bad shape. And this woman named Tanya, who's a neighbor who helped me nurse him, said, you know, in a very menacing fashion with, like, the clippers in my face, like, you don't just put him out in the field. Like, this animal has already been abandoned. It needs something to do. You've got to find a job for him. Like, well, I am not a prospector. Like, what job? (laughs) But that was it. So then every step of the way, I thought, the donkey's not going to live. Oh, maybe he will live, but he can't walk. Uh, Maybe he can run. But then I'd overhunk my own hurdle of, like, that burrow race, man, there's a little bit of PTSD going on from the last burrow race. Do I really want to try this? <laughs> well, burrow racing, obviously, uh, you know, it's a partnership. And I we could go into it for hours, but I guess I should note people should read the book because you just detail it, that uh, um, animal-human connection, which goes back millennia. Donkeys are a little different and the need to just be there, be there and cooperate as a team. Because you can't whip it and tell it what to do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's again, it's a, it's a really cool thing. It was a an eye opener for me, and I felt like it rebooted my own hardware in how I deal with situations. Because one thing to say about donkeys is that your attitude travels down the rope. So if you're in a bad mood, it's going to travel down the rope, and the donkey's going to sense it. You're impatient, travels down the rope. And so what you've got to do is that as things get more tense, you've got to learn to breathe it out and relax. And again, we know this, again, from distance running. 
If you try to push when things are down, you're you're out. If you learn to just zen it out, relax, you can rebound. And you have uh, a number of great references in the book. Uh, in that vein, you reference Chrissy Mail. Yeah. Yeah, you have a good story about Chrissy, and yeah. she kind of, I wouldn't say came out of nowhere, but somewhat close to that. Yeah. And she was an 800-meter runner in college, and she went to uh, the big race, Western States, and didn't have a great day because she was just pushing, pushing, and pushing. And then she realized, you know, put a smile on your face. Yeah. Say hello to your friends. Yeah. You know, it's supposed to be fun. And that's you, you tie that in the book, good examples like that throughout the story. Well, she became the role model for my wife, Mika. My, my wife was not a runner. And she got sort of dragooned into this against her, well, I was going to say against her will, but <laughs> without prior consent, we needed other donkeys to accompany Sherman to get him to run. And so we had another donkey, but we didn't have another runner. So you know, my poor wife gets enlisted into the, into, the, into the army. And so she didn't know about running. So she got Chrissy's book, or actually I had a copy of it, which Chrissy had sent me. She pulled it off the shelf and she started to read it. And training that, for your first donkey. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It became her Bible. But what it was, wasn't the training it was the mindset. So it wasn't like Mika needed to know a training plan. What she wanted to know was, how do you do this? And what she found from Chrissy was, I think, indispensable for anybody. But it perfectly suits my wife, who brings joy to whatever she's into. She's a singer. She's a dancer. Uh, very loving. And then she finds this woman who says the same thing. A loving attitude is the secret. And then you see Rory Bosio do the same thing. Yeah, Rory, of course, won UTMB two years in a row. Yeah. Course record. I was just there this summer. Mm-hmm. You got to like see what's going on there to understand like the magnitude of what those women pull off, Chrissy right. and uh, and not Courtney to Walter, like man. Courtney, yeah, yeah. But the well, the, the, one does note as an <laughs> sorry, Chris, as an aside, American women crush at UTMB. American men, eh, not so much. You know what they call them there? What, what the French call the American team? What team chopper? <laughs> Because they're, they're helicoptered off the course all the time. <laughs> oh, I didn't get that. I know. Team Chopper. Yeah. Right. Well, of course, that's just the males. Just the males. So that's, I look at that in running with Sherman. And it was funny. So I ask this question all the time. Anybody who knows about UTMB, I'll say, well, why is it that the women kick the crap out of it and the American men barely even finish? <laughs> and then someone told me, who was it? Um, someone told me this year that they're talking. Well, I won't say who it is. A very well-known and very accomplished uh, ultra runner. And that runner said, well, it's different because in the Rockies, the air is very dry. We're used to a much more dry. dry. Oh, that's got to be it. And then but in, in, <laughs> in France, it's, it's very humid. It's very wet air. And listen, it's like to breathe in the same air, you realize. The girls don't have separate air. <laughs> right. So I, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, the obvious theory to me is that the women come into it without any testosterone poisoning. Mm-hmm. That they show up, they run their race. Again, I think it's intriguing that the women that I think are most known for that beaming, radiant attitude are the ones that do the best. I don't know Courtney DeWalter very well, um, or at all, actually. So I, I'm curious to see if she has that Rory Chrissy kind of radiance, too. Because mm-hmm. it'd be very interesting if that turned out to be a pattern. That the women who show up with that beam and energy, whether they're the ones that actually... Uh, Good pattern, triumph. of course. Uh, two days ago, as of today, Monday, Ilya Kipchoge just went under two hours in the marathon. And when he goes into the pain cave, he puts a smile on his face. Yeah. Interestingly, science has proven that to be effective. It actually works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one thing you notice about the, the, the Tarahumara as well. 
very playful, very joyful running. Mm-hmm. And the female theme is very strong in running with Sherman. Of course, there's the two women truckers who said, sure, I'll drive them out to Colorado straight through. But also you note that the burro racers, some of the best ever are women and always have been. When you talk to the you know, people like you know, Ken and the others, they don't blink. They've never blinked. It's like, sure, of course, that's how we do it out here. Women, men are cut from the same cloth. Chrissy Mail is definitely like that. She has a new book coming out. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Which is, I think it's called Running with the Boys, come to think of it. Yeah, yeah. And so you, uh, you identify that. The miners and the Buddha racers, they didn't care. So I have a little fact for you. Okay. So you ask people, what's the oldest marathon in America? Oh, I know this one. And they'll say, Boston Marathon, <laughs> 1902, 1901. Yeah. Well, not true. Half. For half the population. Half the Americans. But for all Americans, oldest marathon is the Leadville Borough Race. Because that was the one in the 1950s, men and women were were allowed to run. So mm-hmm. all Americans, for all Americans, not just some Americans, the oldest marathon in America is the Leadville Borough Race. I could note that Pikes Peak Marathon has always allowed females as well. Excellent. What year did that start? Oh, um, it was a long time ago. Okay. So our listeners right now are catching me off guards. I don't have a date. Damn it. I hit you with a beanball. Sorry about that. <laughs> but I thought that Pikes Peak was the oldest for that exact same reason. Right. But the Burrow Race is, is up there somewhere. I was trying to date it. I was looking, is it Pikes or is it uh, the Burrow Race? Uh, one of those two. But yeah, isn't it interesting? That yeah. you, and the fact, again, things get so... Geocentric. We talk about right. marathons. We talk about this, and they went with this little group of unknowns off in the Rockies because they're not professionals and they're not making a big deal out of it. But they're quietly doing the stuff that everyone said was impossible. Oh, and the Boston Marathon story—it's a hell of a story, really. It's a great story with Jock trying to push, literally, physically, of <laughs> Catherine Schweitzer off the course and her boyfriend giving you a body slam, and yeah. And, of course, now it's just bizarre to think about that. And that wasn't that long ago. I know. But at the same time, out west, that wasn't taking place. Yeah, yeah. And, again, so here's, here's my thing. And this is a theory I've been playing with, that it's not as if, oh, okay, well, the women in Colorado are tougher than other women or anything like that. I think what happens is that when humans actually do the activities that we evolved to do naturally, not the shit we just made up for ourselves. So all spectator sports are created by men for men, taking advantage of uniquely male characteristics. So football, baseball, hockey, all that, it takes advantage of upper body strength and physical size, of, of beef. But humans, compared to other species, are not particularly strong. Not at all. So you take the toughest hockey goon in the world, <laughs> put him in a cage with a silverback gorilla... And ain't the hockey players coming out. <laughs> I actually put him in a cage with a chimpanzee. Exactly. Right. He'll tear his testicles off, right? In no, in, in mm-hmm. no time. But what humans are extraordinarily good at are adapting and stamina. So we adapt to adverse conditions. We think our way out of problems. And we have extraordinary stamina. These are the attributes where humans actually reign supreme in the animal kingdom. And cooperation. Yes. Exactly. So cooperation, adaptation, and stamina. Take those three things together. So if you take the activity that we're good at, it would only make sense that the men and the women would be equally good at it. If, Like fish, for instance. If the male fish swim a lot faster than the female fish, you'd have no more fish. They would never, <laughs> they would never reproduce. And so if our strength as humans is running long distances, then it makes sense that the men and the women would be relatively 
equal in ability. And that's what you see in ultra races, in burrow racing, in long distance swimming. The first woman, the first person to ever swim four laps of the English Channel was a woman. First person to swim from Cuba to um, Florida was a woman. Dan Yad. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. That's a good point. Well, I was verifying. I had to verify because I don't know that much about burrow racing. So I called uh, Amber Wine. Okay. Who's in your book. Yeah. <laughs> I love her. And I talked to her just this morning. I said, so, Amber, help me out here. What do you think? She said, I'm really excited about this book. She was quite positive about it. She says, it makes you laugh. It makes you cry. And she thinks it will tug at the heartstrings of a lot of people. That's, that's a pretty good recommendation. And I said, well, how about the credibility? Is Chris just uh, you know blowing smoke here? And she said, no, no, he tells it like it is. Uh, she said it's that animal-human connection, and Chris didn't candy coat it. You can't do uh, all those different things with a large animal with a mind of its own unless you have that teamwork aspect. So she... Uh, she verified that this book, the technical aspects of the book are solid. She, thank you, and because she is a female Ken Clover. You know, Amber is also not going to gild the lily. She tells it like <laughs> it is. And so if she didn't like it, she would, she would let me have it with both barrels. Um, I'm very, very fond of that family. Although, uh, yeah, it's funny because um, Brad and I, you know, have very different political orientations. But you and Ken, Ken as well, I suspect. Ken, I'm not curious about. Mm. I'm not. I'm not 100% sure <laughs> about him because I, I, I could be wrong about this. I get the feeling that his republicanism is almost a marriage of convenience. Because I don't see him at all being that kind of moral conservative in any stretch. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about it. Uh, I don't know. Labels are difficult to apply to many people. Mm-hmm. And indeed, labels probably should not be applied to anybody. So take them for what they are. And, you know, and as, as I even said about Brad Wan, um, instantly, the second I met all of them, the Wan family, welcoming, supportive, what do you want, Chris, here to help you all the time? Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, um, are you going back for any more Puro racing. What does this look? What does this look like, Chris? <laughs> I loved it, and the thing about it is that the race itself becomes more like the victory lap than the actual challenge. Because by the time you get to that starting line, you've kind of got it. You know, you spend so much time partnering with this animal that you feel like the hard work is behind you. Now, now it's just you know, with hands in the air, have a party. The difficulty for us is the distance. So it's a you know, thirty-five hundred mile drive. We did it in 30 straight hours, like almost no breaks. And man, that was, that was, that was tough. So I don't know. Uh, I would love to do it again. I just, man, I just dread that do- drive. And the donkeys aren't big fans of the trailer. And of course, Colorado is burro racing. Right. This, this is it. Yeah. You're, you're not going to go to Florida and race burros. No, but you know, there's a family from Wisconsin, the Pedretti's. And they're down here, man, they, they year come in, out. year out. And it came out in force, too. <laughs> Do you know this year a 15-year-old Pedretti won the fair play race? The I 15 did not. mile race? Yeah. Nice. In New Jersey. Kid shows up, gets a donkey, and wins. Okay. Crazy. All right. Well, we're going to put uh, your Amazon link to purchase your book in our written show notes. I'm not going to read you the link. That'd be too hard. So listeners can go to their written show notes and find the link to purchase the book, which is released tomorrow, yeah. October 15th, even though... This podcast will be released a few days after that, but the book will be in the show notes. All right. How to purchase it. And of course, 
I start off putting on social media. So I'm going to talk to Christopher McDougall. Is there any questions you'd like me to ask him? So, Chris, I'm sorry about this, but okay. I, I'm going to ask you this question. because How do I combine extraordinary good looks with so much charm? I'm not sure, Buzz. I, I know it's a tough one. Fire away, man. <laughs> Hit me with it. Barefoot running. Yeah. Now, you're not running barefoot in a borough race. Do you still ever run? You somehow got identified with this movement. The book is so much more than that, but somehow that particular aspect stuck in some people's minds. So I have to relay the question along. Sure. Actually, I ran in a pair of uh, Warachis, a pair of uh, my friend Barefoot Ted from Born yeah. to Run has a little company making sandals. So I wore a pair of his sandals for the race. And the thing about barefoot running is like the goal is not to go shoeless. The goal is to use bare feet to learn better running form, to learn how to be really light and quick on your feet. And so for me, footwear is like outerwear, like clothing. So if it's warm and I don't need any protection for my feet, like if I'm on a nice asphalt, I go barefoot. If I'm on a trail, then I'll wear a pair of sandals. If I'm on a nasty trail, I'll put on a pair of like New Balance or something. So I basically amp up the protection as demanded by the terrain. And if I don't need it, I don't, I don't use it. Gotcha. Good. And of course, what you said there initially is definitely where the science went to. I think that was pretty good, which is that gives you instant feedback. Yeah. And certainly the structured shoe approach before your book came out, which all the big shoe companies were promoting, all this anti-pronation, all the support and things like that, was scientifically invalidated. They've never found any glimmer of help that that ever provided. Right. Well, a minimalistic shoe, you could feel the ground. Yeah. And so that way you could learn to run with better form, I think, is where that evolved to. And I find it extraordinarily useful because I am not a skilled or fluid runner, and I'm a big chunk of meat, you know? And so for me, when running form starts to go south, I start to pay the price for it. I would get like these really bad like groin cramps. And uh, my friend Eric Wharton, who coached me, said, yeah, look, man, you're dragging your leg. So over the winter when I would wear shoes... My, my foot strike was a lot slower, and so I'm, I'm dragging this big, heavy leg up instead of popping the ground quickly. Mm-hmm. And once I changed the form, once I went back to barefoot again, that problem went away. Interesting. Wow, so it's still working for you. Totally. And to me, it's like a nice, like, sort of come to Jesus, like, when you're running barefoot, you got to get it right. If not, you're going to feel it's gonna, something's wrong. Right, right. The feedback is quite quick. Right. So here's the question that I had about Born to Run. Are they going to make a movie? I don't know. I don't know. All the pieces are in place. I don't know why they haven't rolled cameras yet. And I'm I'm sort of nurturing this little thought of like, maybe it's better that way. Because when we had the book, and my editor and I were discussing whether we should put photos in. Because, you know, Louis Escobar was down there. Took these amazing photos. Oh, we've seen those photos. Amazing. And I thought, we should have these photos in. I mean, that one of our Louvre and Scott is like, should be in the Louvre. And my editor said, uh-uh, let's let people see it in their mind's eye. I mean, I kind of get that. And so we had no photos in that book. And I, I look back on it as a smart move, as a very astute decision um, recommendation. And so same with the movie. There's always that impulse, like you want to, you know, validate everything. Oh, they made a movie out of it, therefore it's better. I, think, I don't know, maybe this thing is good the way it is. Hmm. Well, that's That's interesting. Well, have you sold the rights? For Born to Run? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so someone owns the rights. Oh, yeah. So a production company owns the rights, and they had everything lined up. They had a star. They, they have a star, director, script, financing, and everything I thought was ready to go, but that's as far as I know. I'd like to watch the movie. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm Very rarely does... A film ever live up to your expectations, right? Because so. in your mind's eye, you're seeing something. And who can play Caballo Blanco? Who can play Micah True? Actually, they have somebody, uh, Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. That's pretty darn good. That's a pretty. That's that's got cred. Matthew's got cred, and you can sort of see him. He's got that sort of kind of stringy, Creep. rangy, yeah, <laughs> stringy range. and, and a little bit of like humor and you know bite, s- bite. And he's got bite. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Micah had bite for sure. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. it's got that close, but it hasn't launched yet. Okay. Right. All right. I always think about that when I think of Monkey Wrench Gang, you know, Edward Abbey's book. Why don't they do something with that? Too? Yeah. But, okay, I can I can survive. Yeah. Yeah. So what about yourself? So you've got this, uh, you know, Born to Run became, I think, one of the most influential running books ever. You had a big impact in the sport. The Natural Born Heroes, again, you took some idea that's been there, part of human history, and edified it so we all can understand it, and now running with Sherman. And throughout this, if I may say, you not only have you taken an idea, but you tell a good story. Without the good story, it's like, eh, you know, you have to be able to turn the page. Yeah. Have you seen what might be next, Chris? Yeah, I oh, am. Okay. I'm actually working on something right now. A new book I started sooner than I wanted to, but um, it was, it's actually an interesting thing because it was born out of a failed other project. What happened was I finished running with Sherman, turning the draft, and I was really looking forward to a little bit of downtime. But uh, I read an article about female big wave surfers. Oh. For the first time, they were going to be allowed to compete at the legendary break in Mavericks. That's right. And this was, uh, I think my drafted in January, I'm sorry, in December. And in January, the big swells are coming into Mavericks and they thought they were going to hold the competition. So I hop on a plane immediately and fly out to California and go to Mavericks. Because my thought was, this is cool, man. This is like the Tarumada of surfing. The women have been out there in the wilderness. They've been shut off from competition. They're doing an extraordinarily difficult skill. What a great story. And now, for the first time, they're going to have this competition. So I met a few of the big wave surfers, and I hung out, and I watched the swells, and I was out on boats next to the big breaks. And those are big breaks. Oh, my, they're crazy. You know what the weird thing is, though? You can get right next to the wave. So the way these waves break, these like experienced guys in the boats, they can nose up. They're like 10 feet. In a little channel. So the waves are breaking right in front of you, and yet you're 10 feet away. It's crazy. So you have a first-hand view. So I spent a week out there, and I thought, this is an amazing story. And then I decided, it's not for me. It's not my story. Wow. I'm, I'm out of it, you know? Um, I'm not a woman. I'm not a surfer. I can't do it. I can't physically get I'll never ramp up the ability to actually be on like, a 60-foot wave. It's never going to happen. And so I decided this isn't, this isn't for me. So I thought, well, if this isn't for me, then what is for me? Like, what do you know? Hmm. And it made me look at these books and realize, I hope that what works for me is to be an inside-outer. Like, I'm an outsider, but I can get inside. It's like I, I got a foot in both camps. Uh, I come in with the outsider's perspective, but I can learn 
Because a lot of the adventure books you see, it's one of two things. Either somebody observing something from the outside, or it's like, it's me, me, me. That's a good point. That's a good point. So you have both the perspective, so you can tell the story, and you can tell it in the first person. Right. Oh, that's that's good. I like it. Yeah. So where is this going? So yeah, so I I thought back, what do I know? What do I know? And suddenly, same thing. Talk about the weed and the briar patch. There's a story that's been in front of me for years. A guy that I know really well, um, super uncompetitive, like Mr. Mr. Zen, yet he sets world records in very esoteric activities by not being competitive. And one of his best friends is super hyper alpha male competitive, and yet they get along really well. And so what I'm going to do with this book is talk about that relationship, but I also want to look at the nature of competition, like how it sometimes hurts as much as it helps. Hmm. When you get focused on like the middle, the goal, is it actually helping you or is it tearing you down a little bit? Competition has uh, cuts across, doesn't it? It goes both ways. It exists on all ends of the both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, as being stimulant and a detriment. Interesting. So can, can I ask you about so in the early days of ultra running, did it have the? I, I mythologize it myself as more of camaraderie than competition. Is that right, or am I am I off base? I think it's always. Been on the spectrum, but I think it, it had a niche aspect to it. Yeah, and so there's sort of a, a gentleman's game to some degree, mm-hmm. so that people kind of knew each other, and to be part of the clan was important. Things like that. Yeah, and there's some mythology, like when states started coming into prominence, people said, "Oh, unless you've done this before, you can't win. Unless you're from California, you can't win," which was just absolute rubbish. Yeah. So there's that spectrum. See, there's kind of this boys' club to some degree, and which is friendly and clannish, nice, but yet it was stupid and wrong, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then fast people came there, and unless you were fast, you couldn't win. So maybe I'm not answering that question right, Chris. I think pre-internet, it had to be more like that. I was, I existed pre-internet. Then once the internet started, there was the Dartmouth uh, email search. That was the first one, right? Uh, ultra ultra list, and so it became quite clubbish. And then, after well after that, it started to become more competitive. And then we mentioned Scott, of course, who I'm pretty sure is the first professional ultra runner ever. And so there's the dawn of the Scott Jurek era, you could say. Yeah. And now, you know, young men drop out of freshman years in college to become professional runners. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not my suggestion. Right. But. Uh, Hopefully that provides some answer. Yeah, I think the word you used about the tribe, I think that to me was the clarifying word. That you, mm. It was most important to be a member of the tribe than it was to be faster than the tribe. So you're still uh. running fast and hard, but the goal was, hey, there's these guys out, men and women out there doing this cool stuff in the woods. I want to be doing that stuff as opposed to I want to win, I want to get a sponsorship, I want to have the record, you know. Not that you weren't running hard, right? but that wasn't what got you out there. right. You didn't do Western State because I think I'm going to win. I want to do Western State because this seems really cool, and these people are like right. buccaneers. And that still exists. Right. That's still why most people get into it. So right. I think the spectrum still exists, and what you just described certainly exists with fastest known times. Right. Big time there. You, you used to just be ladies and gentlemen. You know, we kind of knew each other. You trusted your friends. You announced your intentions in advance, and people believed you. Right. But now you can get paid. You get money for 
your sponsorship. Yeah. So if you win a race that goes, your sponsor counts that. If you set an FKT, your sponsor right. counts that. Yeah. So we had to tighten up the rules. You look at our website, the rules have gotten tightened up. And sometimes a person who's very well-known, very well-trusted goes a little bit soft and doesn't document what they did very well. Yeah. And we have to kind of give them a little wrist slap and say, yeah. you need to document this because yeah. people are making money. We want a level playing field. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. All, it, all we're doing is establishing a level playing field. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody is going to get into it trying to make money. Right. So th- see, that's that. I'm sorry, Chris. That's really what I was searching my own mind to try to figure out to say. There is a lot of professionalism. There's a lot of competition. You go out there to win, but no one enters the sport for that purpose. You'd be stupid. That'd be, you know, becoming a waiter would be way better pay. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you're making a, a nickel per hour at best. Yeah. <laughs> right. So everyone's in it for the love of the sport and right. the camaraderie, and they wouldn't mind getting paid enough so they could keep doing it. Yeah. That's the way to describe right. it. Right. But prior to prior to Scott, there was no. There was no in 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 that love at that distance. Yeah. Obviously, there's track people getting paid and things like yeah, that. Right. And of course, it's still a pittance. It's still an absolute pittance. You know, the world majors, a marathon majors. You know, it's a half a million dollars. Yeah. So, it's there's a reason there aren't any Kenyan tribes people running ultra marathons. Yeah. I mean, why do it? Right. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense for right. them, from their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That's just something Micah True used to say was it takes a lot of money to live like a poor person <laughs> in sports. Oh, and the, I, my, my other favorite saying is there at either end of the economic spectrum, there lies a leisure class. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, any other comments on the, the sport, Chris? Because you do have that perspective, you know. You, you, you wrote this book. It changed the way we think about running. Born to run. The title has meaning to it. You know what I mean? It's it's when I started off, people say, "Wow, that's crazy!" You know, banging your knees, things like that. Then you look a little bit more at the science, look at our anatomy and anthropology, and we realize we might have been born to run. That was our survival mechanism, as you said. We weren't going to outfight anything, right? So, yeah. what are you seeing here? Anything in particular? Yeah, for sure. And something I'm I'm really struggling to get my arms around now too. Um, this idea that you know one key about being t- born to run as you said, was you're running something to death, but it was as a group. And the Tatamata also run as a group. Their idea is to run as, as a team, kicking a ball together. And so the thing I'm, I'm just really curious about, you know, when we talk about Kipchoge's world record, those things don't interest me at all. Some individual running super fast, I, I couldn't care less. And so what I'm looking for now is my Amish neighbors have a running club called Vela Springa. Let's all run. And the all is the important word. So what I'm looking at these days is this sense of like maybe we need to rethink our sense of competition and really look at the sense of community and camaraderie and, and see if we can develop that some more. So that's cooperation. Totally. Well, persistence hunting wasn't outrunning the antelope. It was cooperating. Totally. So, you know, you someone goes off to the left, you go right, antelope veers left, and you sort of you cooperate, but you're not gonna outrun the antelope. Yeah. Yeah, which you get a sense of that in, in trail running too. Is and I guess we also with fastest known times, you are building upon the work of people in front of you who blazed the trails, who you know thought it out for you. Right. And so anyway, that's 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 something that I think is so crucial to the sport, maybe too often overlooked. 
Good. I like that. And we're seeing that now with Park Run. Have yeah. you ever heard of Park sure, Run? Sure, absolutely. In the UK, yeah. Yeah, well, then, then this now here right. it's in Canada. Park Run's very cool. 5K, same time and place in various towns. And everyone gets out there and just does it together. That's excellent. I like that. To me, Chris, that's an up note. The spirit of cooperation right now. The world is getting a little odd politically. Things are a little divisive. Yeah. And as Kipchoge said, you wanted to make you sport for positive reasons and make the world a beautiful place. Yeah. And to come together, it can unite us. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, Christopher McDougall. And make sure everyone goes onto the website and looks up how to purchase this book. It's a good read. And thank you, Buzz Burrell, for being my guest today on Fastest Known Podcast. Tune in next time when we're talking to... I think we'll talk to Joe Grant. Joe Grant. Thank you, everybody.